HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. How you doing, Stas and Ashley? Good. Yeah? Yeah. You're doing How better you, than I am. You're doing great. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we made the, uh, we made the Kickstarter uh, goal, uh, plus we made an additional $20,000 plus over the Kickstarter goal, which means that I have to do the lemonade diet and then at some point in the future do the... Um, do the paleo diet. So what you're hearing is me uncorking my quart container of crappy lemonade. Uh, by the way, I heard I missed some calls because uh, I was a little late, uh, kind of as usual. So call your questions two seven eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Uh, I have Eddie here uh, filming this proceedings uh, for posterity. So maybe your call will be filmed, although you will not because you will be at home. How you doing, Eddie? Nice. Doing, well, doing well. We got uh, Jack and Joe in the engineering booth. How are you guys doing? Good, and you were pretty energetic for being on that uh, lemonade cleanse. Well, let me t- intro. let me let me tell you something about the lemonade. So, for those of you that thankfully don't know what this is, the master cleanse uh, was devised by uh, a nut, a nut job uh, <laughs> named uh, Stanley uh, Stanley, I think, Burroughs, uh, sometime in the '40s, and was uh, republicized in the '70s of the last century, and. Uh, yeah, uh, I went. I went ahead and read. Here's the premise: You don't want to eat anything. You want to cleanse your body. His first premise is that all ills are due to this thing he calls a toxemia, which is a buildup of toxins in the body. Right. So, in fact, he doesn't believe that there are such things as dangerous germs or viruses or, or microbes. Take that AIDS. Uh, you know, take that cholera. Anything. Right. The guy doesn't believe in this. He believes that all uh, kind of bad things that happen to us are caused by a buildup of uh, toxins that we take in uh, into our bodies, which is uh, on its face absurd. And then he uh, furthermore says that really what you need to do is clean out these things. And so he has devised a cleanse that he thinks will uh, clean you out and get rid of all the toxic stuff and fix uh, literally whatever ails you. He believes that this will fix whatever ails you. So it's, it's uh, uh, for every 60 ounces of water – 
uh, purified or spring, you know, water. You you need three quarters of a cup of uh, organic, uh, fresh, fresh, of course. I mean, I believe in this part. Lemon or actually lime juice. Does you know you could use lime juice? No, I didn't. Know yeah, you could do lime juice. Possible uh, because, as he says, uh, lemons have more vitamins in them than any other fruit known to man, which is a lie. Uh, and then uh, maple uh, syrup or organic, preferably grade B. Three quarters of a cup, uh, because it also apparently has all sorts of terrific stuff in it. And uh, lastly, but not leastly, uh, some uh, ground-up cayenne pepper, because I think he believes that, uh, you know, if it's hot going in, it's going to come hot coming out, clean you out. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't believe you need any protein in your diet, because he literally believes that, uh, like uh, uh, leguminous trees, we have nitrogen-fixing bacteria in us that allow us to obtain nitrogen out of the air and then synthesize all the necessary proteins out of it. So he believes that you can go on this lemonade cleanse for uh, for 40 days if you want to. By the way, Stas, I tried my first saltwater uh, purge uh, this morning. How was it? Uh, horrible. It tastes horrible. It's horrible. Anyway, uh, and these nut jobs also believe you should not use iodized salt because they believe that somehow it stops it from cleansing you out. Believe me, if you pound a liter of uh, you know seawater-style salty water, uh, you'll get cleaned out mighty, mighty quick. But... One last thing. Yesterday, I did have a, a nightmarish headache because uh, I, uh, I am a, a coffee drinker. So uh, caffeine, if you withdraw from caffeine, you get a nightmarish headache. Uh, and so I guess this is part of the quote-unquote toxins leaving my body. But the problem is, is that the whole, the whole concept behind this diet is that somehow that you have an adversarial relationship to the food you eat and to the life you live and to everything about who you are as a person. When it, and it is true that if I don't have coffee for a, a day or two afterwards, I will have headache until my body uh, clears itself of its desire to have caffeine. But this is not a monkey I want to get off my back. I can't wait to get back on caffeine, not because I need it. Because I like coffee, and because decaffeinated coffee, sorry everyone out there, just doesn't taste the same. It's not the same. I've side-by-sided coffees where people are like, hey man, you can't tell the difference. I can. I can. Believe me, because I'm not drinking like milked out, like milk extravaganzas, right? I drink like short, straight espresso shots. That's what I drink, and I drink it because I like it. So I will go back to, to drinking it as soon as is humanly possible. Also... Have it, Estaz, have you remember, you know what it's like when you eat too much uh, candy? Mm-hmm. It's like so much candy. Mm-hmm. And how you have like that sugar high? Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like to be on, the, on this master cleanse because it literally is just, is just, uh, you're on a sugar high the entire time. It's because you're eating nothing but sugar in the form of maple syrup. It's freaking nuts. No, anyway, let me, uh, let me, uh, what are you reading, by the way, Stas? Just nothing. Did, nothing? I'm listening to you. I'm actually just staring at the page. But what, what, what's the book? Uh, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. By who's Judy, who's Judy McGuire? Oh, I Judy McGuire. Yeah, she's a co-host of the Mike and Judy Show. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah was, she's great. We love her. Good. Yeah, good. It's a cool book. Yeah. Well, this is just I, I just mentioned that because it's on videotape here, and I want you guys <laughs> to know heard, what Nastasia is actually this, doing. I've heard all this. Clips I like, I like what you're doing. Yesterday. I like what you do. I like what you know what you actually do. do it. No, I you didn't because yeah. I hadn't done the salt stuff yet. Not the and I hadn't reported stuff. any of it back. Not you hadn't heard stuff. any of it actually. I, heard about I hadn't. Burles. I hadn't read the Burroughs. No, I hadn't read it yet. No, you know, you just. I just want people to know out there now recorded on videotape. Exactly what goes on in the Cooking News program. Okay. Uh, Adam called with a follow-up from last week. Just want to thank you to take time to answer my question on last week's podcast. You'd be pleased to know this is the person who, um, who was asking whether they could save the stuff at the back of their fridge because the wife is pregnant now. You remember? 
Just wanted to thank you for taking the time to answer my question on last week's podcast. You'll be pleased to know I threw out the stock and stewed fruit, although I'm still surprised there isn't a more scientific way to determine the food safety of refrigerated items. Thanks again for the program. I've learned a lot. Cheers, Adam. Uh, Ryan Berkeley writes in about hams. Dear Dave, Nastasha, Jack, and I'm going to add Joe and Eddie. Uh, I impulsively ordered a whole country ham several months ago from Finchfield Farms in Kentucky's. Actually, scratch that. I actually ordered two country hams due to an accidental click. You know, you shouldn't be able to do that. You shouldn't be – Yeah, like is it because – I think that happens to us at Booker and Dax because our internet is so slow that you hit click a couple of times. Have you ever double bought something? No. No. Yeah, it shouldn't be allowed. Anyway, but don't worry. Anyway, the problem is I don't have a meat slicer, and it seems a little silly to order one just to eat these hams, and cutting them with a chef's knife has been a nightmare even after I do a bit of amateur sharpening. What's the best way to cut up this ham other than buying a meat slicer? Should I get a longer knife? How about some kind of holder apparatus for the ham? Or maybe just take my 7-inch chef's knife in for a proper sharpening? Thanks for any guidance. Ryan from Berkeley, California. Two, well, first of all, congratulations on the purchase of a good ham. Finchfield uh, makes an excellent ham. Uh, I visited their uh, plant once. Uh, they are uh, they do like a semi-ambient cure where it's uh, ambient, you know, in other words, not temperature controlled during the first portion of it. They uh, they used to anyway. I don't know if they still do this, but they really only cure one time a year and then they run out. A good product. Uh, all around uh, good. Also, memory serves uh, non-smoked, not a smoked ham. Uh, and I'm trying to remember. I think believe they also do uh, bag cures. So the ba- hams are wrapped in bags as they're being cured for a portion of the time. Anyways, uh, good hams. Uh, Seven-inch chef's knife is not the tool to attack this with. First of all, go out and get a longer chef's knife for this sort of dealy anyway. But uh, what you're going to want to do is get a thin blade slicer. I don't do not I do not recommend any meat slicer on uh, I've, I've ever used other than a professional meat slicer. The little ones that they sell, they're they're crap. I mean, uh, pardon me if anyone out there sells them for a living, but they're crap. They don't work. You know what I mean? At least the ones that I've used, they just don't work. What you're going to want to – like, look, a professional meat slicer is super, super baller. It's awesome, right? But uh, they're very big. Uh, you have to clean them, and it's not so easy. And Sometimes newer ones are easier to clean. The Hobart Model 3000 slicer is easy to clean, but it's very expensive. Uh so uh, here's what you should probably do. Traditional old school – now, in America, we've come to eat our hams like this, uh, cut cross crossways, right? The way you normally would get prosciutto if you go to a deli, cut crossways. Uh, and this produces a, um, a cross-section of what's going on uh, in the muscle, and it's very tender. It comes apart, but – European advocates have uh, – European ham uh, folk have long advocated for slicing uh, the long way. So you get a little piece of, uh, of a bunch of different muscles and you can get these long strips. They are a lot chewier. But uh, I had an expert make me some the other day and it was quite good. But you've got to remember European hams are uh, not cured in the same way that ours are in the way that they're hung. So they don't have the same necessarily slicing characteristics because they're not the same shape. Uh, Finchville and other hams are hung with the point, with the with the hock and down, so that the cushion, that big part of the meat, kind of gets full and fills up because it's it's more normal for it to be served American style that way. What I recommend you do is um, debone the ham or cut the cushion off the top of the ham, and then use the separate piece, use the pieces on the bottom for different. And then once you have it as a more manageable piece, trim away a portion of the skin. Make sure it's very cold when you slice it, and then you can slice off thin sli- thin slices with 
a uh, like a long flat slicing knife, which are they're flat, they're easy, like one that's meant for slicing fish or that, but like any long slicing knife. But you're going to want significantly longer because you want long draws on it. You don't want to do a lot of sawing on it, so you're going to want to get one that's long, like 14 inches or more. I I haven't measured one recently, but long. And if you're going to attack something with a chef's knife, uh, you're going to want – I mean with a ham, it doesn't really matter. You don't need a long chef's knife because there's no place you can really get into it with it, but – Go ahead and, and uh, next uh, next uh, you know super gift giving holiday like invest in a sweet you know they used to say in all the uh, mag cooking magazines you know you know an eight an eight inch knife is good enough whatever let me tell you something once you get yourself a good ten inch chef's knife good quality one right that feels good in your hand and I don't care whether you prefer Japanese Western Japanese or uh, or Western style knives. Uh, like my one of my favorite, believe it or not, is a, is an old French style sabatier, like really old carbon. But a t- once you start like using a ten inch knife, it's such a joy, right? Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, ten inch knife. Gotta love a ten inch knife. Go for ten inch. Anyway, uh, hope that helps. And by the way, uh, just keep eating the ham a little bit every day. That's what I do. Like ham. Like in the little scraps and stuff, like ham and eggs. Like no one's ever made a better combination than country ham and eggs. I don't think. I don't think so. Uh, anyway, Peter writes in another follow up. I'm the fellow from Minnesota that dropped the call. Uh, dropped the call on you two weeks ago. Sorry about that. The answer to your follow up question. I remember he was asking about different ways uh, to treat deer meat because he got a lot of deer meat in Minnesota, which is a problem I wish I had here in New York. To answer your follow-up question, we get a range of deer throughout the season, so you'll get anything from fawns to old does. When you put them in the bag, the gamey flavor has been a bit intense, and as such, I've been using pretty strong sauces to counter them. Think juniper berries with currant preserves. Do you have any other strong flavor combinations that could uh, hold up to the gamey power of an old doe? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, usually uh, when you're talking about gamey flavor, uh, people recommend like the pre-soak in some sort of an acidic uh, marinade. But I, I haven't been able to elucidate the chemistry of it, uh, of why. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that it's a similar chemistry to what happens with, uh, for instance, fish uh, when you add vinegar on them and it kind of uh, deactivating some of the nasty smells that are there. I don't really know, but it's universal. I wasn't. I read. Uh, I went back and reread uh, After the Hunt, which is John Fulce's book on uh, Louisiana game cookery. And didn't find any uh, sort of stuff. I mean, a lot of what I read about the taste of gaminess in deer has to do with well, there's natural gaminess because deer has a flavor. Thank God, it's delicious. But uh, there's also uh, kind of an off flavor that can happen based on slaughtering and kill. Uh, steps and I read a number of scholarly papers that were not very helpful because all they basically said was stuff that you already knew, which is you need to chill the sucker down very quickly, and that a lot of bad deer flavor comes from the fact that the deer hangs out in the back of a pickup truck too long before it can get cooled down. Um, but the other interesting thing they said was that uh, in general people prefer uh, check this out. So between does and bucks, right? People prefer does, and does are slightly more tender, at least in the studies that I've read. There's one contradictory study out of Poland, but most of the ones said that. And even furthermore, they have a, a different um, kind of a, a fla- flavor breakdown, but I can't I, – I don't know whether it's due to diet. This study didn't go that far. But interestingly, although younger does were preferred to uh, older does uh, – Older does are preferred to younger bucks, even though the younger bucks are probably more tender. People just preferred the doe meat. Strange, right? What yeah, happened? Caller. Oh, uh, we'll get back to some more deer stuff in a minute. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, hi, this is Stephen Benzinger from Indianapolis. How are you guys today? Doing all right. How's Indianapolis? It's uh, it's pretty good. The weather's actually nice out here for once. Nice. Um, so a uh, question for you. I am uh, cooking for somebody who is neutropenic at this point. 
Uh, and I was curious. Do you know what is a neutropenic diet something that's... Now hook me up. Give, uh, give us a neutropenic. Okay, so when you take chemotherapy, right. uh, it, if you have like a leukemia or something, it wipes out your... Uh, it essentially wipes out your bone marrow, so you cannot produce white blood cells, so you have no no real immune system. So uh, food safety at this point is extremely, extremely important. Yes. Um, and so uh, I was curious on your opinion about, uh, first of all, uh, some safe practices like maybe boiling pork containers before making soups or, or whatever uh, that I could do in this situation. Uh, also, I was curious about uh, yogurt and because uh, it has a lot of bacterial cultures, uh, but they're good bacteria, and everything I read says don't give neutropenic people yogurt. But because of competitive growth, I would assume that there was no uh, pathogens in there, but I'm not sure. This is an interesting question. Okay, so let me just say at the get-go, not having studied the problem, I, uh, like I'm, I'm going to hesitate to make any actual pronouncement here. So the only dietary restriction is absolutely nothing that would compromise the immune system. There's no dietary restrictions from a food standpoint. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of just like a very hyper version of what you would do with a pregnant person, right? Exactly, yeah. I was listening to a few of your podcasts and uh, everything that I heard about pregnant people I was applying to the situation kind of, but I'm still... Right. I mean, if you want to serve somebody like super safe, just as a, as a note, I'll say the same thing I say when I talk about um, um, cooking for pregnant people. An immersion circulator is a fantastic investment for – I don't know if you already have one. But an immersion circulator is a fantastic investment for, for, this, uh, for this sort of diet because – now, I don't go pushing the – don't go pushing the edges. Do you know what I'm saying? But like, right. Don't, uh, don't try the 54-degree stuff maybe or, or – Right. Like, okay. Right. Exactly. So don't push, don't push the envelope. But you know, all of a sudden for this person, you can cook – uh, you know, a bunch of stuff that is, uh, you know, amazing that they can't otherwise have because they have to cook the crap out of it. So, I mean, I would definitely focus on things like 62-degree uh, eggs, applications like that. You know, you, I, you're going to be more careful than they otherwise other people would be about making sure there's no cross-contamination and stuff like this. But you have the ability right. then to serve this person – uh, foods that they couldn't or ordinarily get when they were when they were out. Um, okay. Now with yogurt, I mean, my initial inclination is that you're right. There's competitive bacteria in yogurt uh, that are going to prevent um, uh, most most pathogenic th- you know pathogens from growing in it. But if if the if the here's the issue a lot of doctors out there will just say no you can't have it why because they haven't done the research and so rather than tell you no you can't have it because i haven't done the research i would say that if someone has said you can't use it i would go and see why they said you can't use it right i mean i'm i'm all for making an informed uh decision on this but i don't know all the factors so it could be that some doctor out there who has a lot of knowledge and maybe even some clinical experience has seen problems with yogurt and patients who are on chemotherapy right and so right. – I, I, and I don't know that. But I've seen it go the other way too where doctors have made knee-jerk responses to questions about foods just because they don't have a lot of food information. They're not cooks. They're not – they don't study this thing. They don't really know much about food. And so I, 
I, I can't make a statement about it one way or the other except for figure out what the source is and then make a judgment. I mean, I have no problem overruling a doctor who just speaks from a, uh, a knee-jerk perspective. You <laughs> yeah. know? But on the other hand, I've had it go the other way where people are like, no, I've, you know, I've seen actually clinical problems because of X, Y, or Z. Now, when it comes to boiling core containers, core containers can very easily uh, stand up to boiling uh, liquids. So that's not going to be – in fact uh, – you know what can't actually interestingly is the lids. The lids are made from a different material than uh, the core container themselves. The, li- the, the core containers are polypropylene and can easily stand up to boiling water. And in fact, I don't believe they'll melt down even in a pressure cooker, although I think you're getting close. I have to look it up. Whereas the lids are made of polyethylene, which melts at a much lower temperature, which is why when you nuke stuff in core containers, the lids expand and blow up and the, and the containers are fine. So you're going to have a difficult time sterilizing uh, lids of core containers with boiling water. I would just use a sanitizing solution uh, if you're worried about it. If your soups are extremely hot, they should self, uh, self-obliterate uh, whatever That's is in right. it. kind of. Yeah, right. But uh, it's a very good idea uh, to keep a, a sanitizing solution bucket around the kitchen and just be ultra aware during this time of cross-contamination and making sure that things aren't dripping on each other and making sure things are um, sanitized properly. I mean, if you can, okay. you, you know, if you can, I mean, I don't know what you make, but, you know, presumably, you know, um, if, because you're worried about it, you're going to do a good job, assuming that you're being vi- vigilant. You know what I mean? Right, right. Definitely. And um, do, you, do you have time for like, uh, like one or two more questions? Uh, sure. Shoot me. Okay. Uh, first one, the, the I'm actually building the, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, about to be a med student, so I'm not going to have a lot of money. So I'm actually building the immersion circulator from the uh, Seattle Food Geek website. Um, and I was wondering if you thought that that one was a, a good model, besides the fact that if you turn it on outside of the water, it overheats and blows up, uh-huh. essentially. But. Yeah, well, you can fix that, you know, by just uh, strapping uh, an extra overtemp, um, an overtemp thermometer to the heating element. Which one is that? Is that the one that's built in the acrylic uh, case? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. We're trying to figure out a different thing for the acrylic because uh, uh, I don't have a lot of time to build it, and the people that are building it for me are not as familiar with how to heat the acrylic to bend it, and I'm, I've never done it either. So, I, I, you know, just just in case we're trying to figure out a better box for it than the acrylic. But um, what's the yeah, total? So what's the total cost of it when you're done? Uh, Seventy bucks, eighty mm-hmm. bucks. That's pretty cheap. Uh, that's pretty cheap. I mean. Uh uh, I, I've never used I've never used it. Uh, the only circ- I've used only commercial circulators and ones I've built myself. I'll say that right. the ones I've built myself, uh, you know, like the first one I built was with you know coffee, you know, immersion coffee heaters, and they leak electricity, and so I got shocked whenever my hand went into the bath. But you know, uh, the, the the temperature equipment, temperature monitor equipment now being what it is, I mean, you're going to be able to get the accuracy with the home. So you're not, from a safety standpoint, you're not going to have a problem. It's just a question of whether or not you like the usability of it compared to a, um, right. you know, compared to, to a standard one. But look, if, if, if it's the only thing you can afford to get and it's 80 bucks, do it, you know, okay. do it. And, yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the one, I've seen a couple where people have found like kind of prefab boxes that were used <laughs> for other things that kind of work. 
You know what I mean? Okay. Um, Just drill a few extra holes in them or, or something like that. Yeah, when you're drilling acrylic, you've got to be careful drilling acrylic. When you're drilling acrylic, it has a tendency to shatter because acrylic is very shatter-prone as opposed to other things like Lexan. Uh, uh, also, you can't wash acrylic with alcohol because it crazes and goes nuts. Uh, when you're drilling with acrylic, you're going to want to get a special drill bit that has a, a different point. It's much more pointy, and you're going to want to make sure that you uh, have the acrylic backed up with a piece of wood or something else so that there's it doesn't flex a lot as the drill bit goes through, and it's going to prevent shattering because it's really irritating. And once you shatter a piece of acrylic, you're going to keep propagating that crack, crack, especially if it's at a stress point. Okay. Would it, would it help to heat the acrylic uh, before drilling? No, no, no. In fact, no. In fact, the problem is it heats and gums, and then your drill bit catches, and then it cracks. Uh, I, I would just, I mean, if you can, I would put it even in, in water on top of a block of wood and go through it. But acrylic, I'm just, I'm telling you, is acrylic, like acrylic drills beautifully when you do it right, but then, you know, when you stop paying attention is when you, you know, drill a hole through it and you shoot a crack across it. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay, and, and I, have, I have one more quick question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to take up so, many, so much of your time. Uh, but uh, I was curious about uh, if you, so if I have a, another friend that's going gluten-free, and I'm, I'm giving them suggestions for thickeners like xanthan gums and agar-agar and things like that to replace, uh, you know, starches that are, um, that are you know, that have gluten in them, like wheat, wheat flours and things. Uh, but I was curious if, uh, what was the source? You were talking about one time that there was a source from National Starch or something like that was that was just like 100% uh, um, amylopectin or, or something like that. That was. That was I mean, well, I mean, uh, I don't remember exactly what what we were talking about, but Nash, the National Starch Corporation, other than having an awesome name, National Starch, was um, they have a lot of different um, starches that are um, specifically geared towards certain things, and they are very aware of gluten because it's a huge business. So they have a, a you know they have a, a lot of knowledge about it, and a lot of their databases are online. So depending on your particular application, I'm sure you know they. If if they don't have a starch that will fit what you need, then probably nobody has a starch that will fit what you need. I mean they they are I mean, they, they come by their name honestly. National starch. Awesome. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. You have another caller. Oh, you do. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hi, uh, Jarvis. I'm calling from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, what's up, um, Milwaukee? I've you know I've never been to Milwaukee. I've been near Milwaukee, but never been to it. Yeah, you should come down. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I, I, I drink the beer, I own the tools, but other than that, I don't know. yeah. Uh, I had a question uh, regarding uh, sausages. Um, our owner has a farm that has uh, megalitsa pigs, Ooh, nice. and uh, we're trying. I'm trying to make uh, Italian sausages out of it, but what's happening is uh, the sausages themselves are coming out really fatty. Um, because of the fat content, I mean, I'm still I'm using uh, Michael Ruhlman's uh, charcuterie uh, book uh, for the Italian sausage recipe. Right. Um, but uh, what happens is after I case it, um, I hang them to dry. Uh, I do prick them, um, and then when I I need to render it in the hotel pan first to get the uh, to get the initial fat off. But when I put it on the grill, um, there's still more fat to come off, um, and then also uh, the casing. Splits as well, so I was wondering the question about the, the the actual sausage and then the casing as well as how do I make a hard, nice, sturdy, crispy uh, casing um, on the grill? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I, actually, the casing problem is one I wish I'd studied more. I was just talking about this with Nastasha how the the Germans make the greatest 
sausage casings, right, Zaz? Mm-hmm. And kind of that, that snap of a good sausage casing when you bite into it and the meat just explodes. Awesome. Right. Uh, but, okay, so we'll get back to that in a sec. So the, the, first of all, what's the diet? Uh, do you, like, are, they, are they being fed kind of a standard grain diet? Are they being what, – what are these pigs being fed? In other words, what's the characteristic of the fat? Is it a hard fat or is it really soft fat before you process it? Well, it uh, – it is kind of it, it gets it kind of melts in my hand if we if you don't work fast in a room temperature kitchen. Right. Um. Uh. So it is kind of it's kind of softer. Um. It's not that soft though. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So I mean, for for sausage production, a lot of times you're going to want a little bit of a firmer fat, just because. Okay. Uh. Well, it depends. Also, okay. everything. Look, everything depends. When you're having. Like when people are making salumi with like dried stuff, they want that mm-hmm. like the nice stuff that really stands up to the you know. So they they you know they prize. So that's why things like the bayota fed um, like with this really soft uh, fat of ibericos, they make awesome hams, but harder to to make straight dried sauce. It's awesome. I love their dried sauce. Please, no one call me and say that they don't make good dried. I'm not saying that, but like the the texture of the of the fat's a little bit more difficult. I think you know one thing is. Are you really chilling the heck out of the meat before you grind it? Uh, I, I guess, I guess not. I mean, I put it in the cooler until I need it. Uh, it is cold. It's definitely not, not warm. Or, uh, you know, my my hand is definitely not as warm as. I mean, it's it's cold. Yeah. But it's not like, you know, it's not like deep chilled, um, where the surface is starting to seal up a little bit but i mean i guess i could leave it in there a little bit longer i could put it in the freezer for a, for a for a second just to kind of give it a deep chill but not freeze it yeah yeah you know so what I, when i'm making sausage especially if i use a softer fat or like if i'm using a non-pig fat like duck fat or something like that you need mm-hmm. you need to get it really really cold otherwise um and and you know as i believe it might even say in the charcuterie book uh you know, it's hard to tell when you're making a sausage what's happened to the fat during the grinding process. Uh, you can only really tell once it cooks and you start bleeding out a lot of the fat that would otherwise stay in. So what I would do is um, I would I, I usually pre-slice the the meat into the strips that I'm going to feed into the grinder. Then I lay them out on uh, sheet trays, and then I throw the sheet okay. trays in the freezer, and I wait until they mm-hmm. get basically pliable but hard, right? Almost par frozen, and then and then I feed them in. And if it takes me too long, I'll even have a couple of ice chips. To even, I know you don't want to add water, but I'm saying a couple. Just keep that sucker cold. Also, if you're using one of the big meat grinders, I would mm-hmm. uh, I would throw all the parts in ice water before you grind. Like pull the meat okay. grinder apart, throw it in ice water, get that whole sucker cold before you grind. So then you know, flick all the extra water off, put it together, take your par frozen meat, grind it in, and I'm, my guess. Is that's going to take care of ninety percent of your problems? That's my guess. Okay. Um, now, on the casings uh, breaking apart, are they breaking when they're? Are they breaking on the drying step or when you grill them? When we when I grill them. Yeah, I mean, if a sausage isn't like fu- like, fu- typically I will pa- pre cook a sausage before I uh, before I hit it on a grill, just because right. you're going to get much less splitting. I mean, the best way you could do it in a combi, you could do it in. Um, you could do it. I was using the. Uh, I'm sorry. I was using the uh, circulator. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Six, Sixty degrees for an hour. That's great. So, so you did it like that, pulled it out, and they were still breaking apart on you on the uh, on the grill. Uh huh. Correct. Huh. 
uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe with the I don't know. I have to think about that. Usually, yeah. well, usually that's a recipe for keeping it together. It's like too much air in there, maybe when the stuffing process. He said he he said he pricked them though and got the air out. Yeah. It's either air yeah. or or maybe the fat bubbling or out, fat or maybe bubbling. moisture content. But you said you dried off the stuff. I don't I don't yeah, see why. I don't see why, unless they're mechanically damaged. If they're if, like, obviously, everybody knows if you try to cook a sausage from raw on the grill, you're going to break the skin. Everybody mm-hmm. knows this. But if you par- pre-cooked like that, and they're not broken when they come out of the uh, circulator, right? No. No. Yeah. Mm. Maybe try a little less drying time before you grill them off. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I, I'd have to think about it. Maybe, maybe someone else who has some experience in this uh, can troubleshoot that. But I think I've solved your fat bleeding problem. I think you just yeah, yeah, that that would help a lot. Yeah, everyone everyone um, tends to underestimate how cold they want their meat to be, and the answer is very, very cold. But even when I paddle, uh, you know, the the recipe calls for you to paddle the uh, the vinegar um, into the. Uh, to the grind after you grind it, uh, that's going to bring the temperature down a bit. But I should also put the bowl and the paddle into the freezer as well. Yeah, everything should be everything should be like just cold. And in fact, the most okay. the, like so like there's two so when you're grind when you're grinding sausage is like the first time when like everything can go to hell in a handbasket in this situation, right? And also. I mean, I find that like pre-cutting the meat into strips like that and setting them out like gives me another opportunity to make sure I'm not putting crap I don't want in my sausage, but like pieces okay. of grizzle or whatever, because I don't like to put that in, even though I know you can. Whatever, I don't like to do it. And then uh, the second time you can mess stuff up is either on the primary bind when you're mixing it together, if you really want to bind the sausage a lot, or if you're mm-hmm. doing um, if you're doing uh, an emulsification step for an emulsified sausage. And both of those, it heats the enemy. I, gu- right. I guarantee you that's what's, what's happening. But I'm pretty sure that what's happening to you is happening at the grinding stage. Okay. All righty. Good Thanks luck with us. Let us know what happens. All righty. Hey, Dave. Yes. So we've got another caller, but really quick, I want to shout out somebody who became a member, a listener of Cooking Issues, Irene Lee. And she had a really nice message I thought I'd pass along. She said, I thought you guys might be entertained to hear that we usually listen to cooking issues while we're on our way to and from Restaurant Depot, which I assume you're familiar with. The place is a real bummer. No one knows how to park. No one can face all their barcodes the same way. And a lot of the food is scary, like really freaky and weird. But it's part of our reality because it's our best option for dry goods, paper, and cleaning supplies. Is she from Boston? Is that Irene from Boston that we have a question in from later? Um, I believe so. Yeah, it is. She is nice. from Boston. Yeah, nice. All right. So uh, thanks to Irene for becoming a member. And then, real quick, li- uh, like listeners of Cooking Issues who can't make our big fundraiser August 11th, which is going to be awesome, and we'll all be there. Uh, you can get ten dollars raffle tickets, which uh, is for a dream trip to Seattle. All expenses paid, flight, hotel, three meals of your choice at Tom Douglas Restaurants. So that's from Chef Tom Douglas out there in Seattle. So it's HRN Hawaiian BBQ. Eventbrite.com for raffle tickets. Nice. Yeah, and we have a caller. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave, this is Andy from Chicago. How's it going? Doing all right. Doing all right. How you doing? Doing good, thanks. My question, the guy who's having the problem with the sausage, you think there's any issue with overstuffing and just putting too much pressure on the casing? Yeah, that could be. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought of that. It's yeah, it's definitely uh, a possibility. I mean, um, you're from Chicago. You're not from Butcher Packer, are you? Uh, I buy from Butcher Packer, but I'm not from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
just made yeah. me think of it. Because someone else, uh, the same guy who was asking about uh, deer before, is stocking out his uh, his butcher supply stuff because he, he's going to they're going to be butchering more deer this year. And I was thinking, he's like, do you have any recommendations for other stuff I need, for sausage stuffers and stuff? But I've only ever really yeah. used the I've only ever used like the five and uh, I guess the ten pound guys, the uh, crank guys. So I don't really know anything about uh, bigger ones than that. Do you have any experience with that? Yeah, me too. I've used the expensive ones and I've used the cheap ones from like Grizzly and the cheap ones from Grizzly seem to work. Fine. Yeah, they work yeah. fine. And you know what I don't like are the ones that look like uh, the ones that look like weird horns. Right. Yeah, the, never use those. Never. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. me neither. But I just don't like them. I saw, I've seen right. them, and uh, so I guess I'm also while you know while we're talking, I'm answering uh, part of uh, Peter's question. But yeah, I don't, I don't like those suckers. But, but mm-hmm. so and another thing, I think that most people, when you're going to uh, set up a big butchery thing, get a bandsaw. I don't see that on the list of stuff. Get a bandsaw. Everyone loves a bandsaw, right? <laughs> Extremely dangerous in the kitchen because people don't think about how dangerous they are, and it will cut your finger off as fast as it will cut off a you know a, a, a rib. But uh, if you are accustomed to wood shops and you know how you know danger works, then I think a bandsaw is a good good thing to get for your butcher setup. I mean, you know how danger works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, swear to God, if you're going to slice up a bunch of hams, like especially country hams, bandsaw. Anyway, so what was your? What, do you have a question? Or are you just uh, talking sausage with me? Wait, hold on a sec. You're, cu- you're, you're, you're cutting out a little bit. Hold on a sec. Start again. Yeah, I uh, I wrote in. I'm, I'm the guy who goes to Alabama sometimes to go fishing. I did the Ikijimi on the bluefish. Oh, beautiful. Uh, years ago. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't get any bluefish this year. Uh, it's kind of a crappy fishing year, but I did get a, a like a 35 pound big drum redfish, uh, which was great. And um, it's uh, it's a little tough, you know. The bigger they get, obviously, the tougher they get. And so I was thinking about doing it low temp for tenderization, uh, doing kind of a test with four chunks over a five hour period. You know, tested at one, two, three, and four hours. Uh, does that seem like good? Do you have, have you ever had an experience with uh, big tough fish tenderizing them? Yeah, well, uh, well, low temp cooking. Well, okay. So I mean, the problem with fish and low temp cooking is that usually, for most fish, uh, you cook them for a long time, and but they don't get better they just get kind of mushy so they don't get yeah they don't get tenderer in other words like the hardness is still there but it's just also mushy there are a couple fish that can stand long cooking times like stripers i know stripers can take long cooking times in circulators and uh and they're one of the few fish that i think tastes okay at higher temperatures like 57 celsius which is like 135 so, like, you know, like that's the kind of fish that usually I'll cook a long time. It's also, luckily, the fish that I usually get in larger sizes, like 36, 40-inch right. stripers. And uh, I cook them whole, and you need to cook them a long time because they're tough. You know, I'm not, sorry. Yeah. But, but, no, you need to cook them a long time because they're large. Yeah, right, because yeah. they're large. Uh, they also tend to get tough when they're big, but it's good because you're not overcooking them. Uh, right. So if you're cutting something into fillets – I don't think there's any reason to cook it for a long time. What you cook it through, okay. and you should be done. Now, prove me wrong, like please, you know, cook cook it. But I find that most fish, when cooked for a long time, tends to degrade uh, mm-hmm. rather rapidly. Like I don't really like salmon; it's cooked more than like twenty minutes or so. 
right. e- you know, even you know, in a circ, if I'm doing like a higher thing, like if I'm doing like fifty fifty uh, and change for like a cold poached thing, you know what I mean? Where I'm going to cool it back down, yep. so I'm going to cook it through. Uh, I still don't, you know, like it cooked too too Very long. long. No, well, unless you go a, all the way to the other side and do canning. Fish and de- so I'm thinking maybe you know maybe it's more along the lines of a stripe. I'm thinking it's definitely more along the lines of a striper than it would be of a salmon. So right, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot and let you know. I'll tell you a striper can take two. I've, a striper can take two and a half hours while you're waiting for the center to cook through. Because like the larger ones that I cook take two and a half three hours to cook through at 57 and they mm-hmm. they don't they don't turn to crap they're fine so yeah. if you need the to cook it that too. long yeah. yeah yeah so and you know, also i fry the outside but like if i you know right. if you know it, they can take it it will it will work all right cool i'll give it a shot thanks very much thank you take care i, I love those experiments you did with ikijimi last year they were awesome uh okay so i think did we answer like peter's question on the on the well before we before we go go uh back like if you're from Minnesota, and and you're interested in uh, hunting, you got to get the Bull Moose uh, Cookbook, which was a cookbook uh, by Christian uh, Herder back in way back in the day. He owned an outdoor shop and he had a, a couple of cookbooks. They are wildly inaccurate. He was like crazy, probably probably a misogynist. I don't know. I know he had some very unchoice things to say about Hollywood starlets in his book, but his book is the craziest cookbook, one of the craziest cookbooks I've ever read. Complete nutbag. Uh, and like interspersed with like how to uh, how to uh, you know get a tortoise to stick its uh, head out when you cut its head off answers of course to shove your finger in its behind but uh, it's an interesting book to read if you are a hunter and from Minnesota because it's part of your Minnesota hunting heritage uh, okay so uh, on to Lucas who now lives in Nairobi uh, hey long time listener from Australia who's lo- uh, living in Nairobi at the moment Stas you lived in Nairobi for a while right mm-hmm. yeah how long were you there a month how long ago yeah, yeah. Never, never been to Kenya. What? Right before you. Yeah, never been to Kenya. Uh, so, I, and uh, okay. This brings up my first question. When I got over here, a few people told me it's much harder to bake at altitude. Is this true? Can you describe why altitude might cause difficulty in getting breads and or cakes to rise? Uh, I've had little trouble. Bread comes out different to at home, uh, but I put that down to different quality ingredients. The flour at the star is not the same. Uh, so for me, yeast risen items are fine, and I haven't tried chemical rising agents yet. Okay, look. Uh, as far as I can tell, Nairobi is at uh, 1,795 meters, which is 5,889 feet. At that altitude, water will boil at 93.7 Celsius or 200.7 Fahrenheit. Now listen. That is true, and so things uh, that are boiled tend to cook longer, but that's not the biggest deal. The fact of the matter is that uh, also water is going to evaporate at a much more ferocious rate. So uh, things just operate in in different ways. Uh, I would go to the um, Colorado State. Dot edu they have a whole thing on altitude uh, baking and what to do with it and and King Arthur Flour actually has an interesting thing because they're a flour company but the the upshot is that uh, gas bubbles are going to expand more quickly so you generally use less leavening agent as you go up higher uh, also because uh, things evaporate faster right th- uh, in in the oven they will because the oven is the temperature of the oven is and the humidity is lower so the water inside is going to evaporate faster as that happens it's going to create more steam much more quickly, right? So 
Uh, things tend to rise more and pop more. Uh, it's also harder to get things to boil, etc. So, uh, according to Colorado State, uh, high altitude has its most pronounced effect on the rising time of bread. At high altitudes, the rising period is shortened since the development of a good flavor in bread partially depends on the length of the rising period. It is well maintained that period. Punching down the dough twice gives the time for the flavor to develop or perhaps just use less freaking yeast. Right? Uh, in addition, flowers tend to be drier and thus absorb more liquid in high dry climates. Therefore, less flour may be needed to make the dough a proper consistency. Right? Which makes sense. Secondly, uh, I really like darker sugar uh, in pretty much everything. If you're going to add sweetness, why not add flavor at the same time? Uh, says Lucas. Uh, and I, I think so as well. I like some dark sugar. Not always. Sometimes. Uh, if you're adding a darker sugar in place of more refined sugar, for example, fine muscovado in place of castor, are the sweetness levels the same or is more refined sugar sweeter per volume? Um, keep up the, uh, keep up the good work. Enjoy the show. Cheers, Lucas. All right. Well, volume is a, so, okay. So on a weight basis, brown sugars are technically a little bit less sweet than, uh, sugar because they have non-sucrose stuff in them like ash and other things that are making them brown. Now, the most hardcore brown sugar you can get in, uh, the Codex Alimentars where you looked up with, with is still 88% straight sugar, right? That's like including the water that's in it and the most molassesy, most dark brown. And that's high. That's higher than any of the actual stats I've read on brands that I could find. So you're looking at something that's roughly the same sweetness as sugar, on a weight basis. Now, volume basis has a lot to do with density. Now, the brown sugar that you buy, you know, Domino brand brown sugar that we buy here in the States is about the same uh, one-to-one sweetness uh, as regular refined uh, granulated sugar on a volumetric basis. But it just packed brown sugar. But it just happens to be that way. If you were to have a sugar of a different density, it would be wildly different. That's why I always recommend going on a weight basis with sugar, right? Weight basis. So the answer is yes and no. Okay. Uh, Irene wrote in, same Irene, I think, uh, uh, Jack, right? From the uh, Maymay, the Maymay Street Kitchen. There's, in fact, a Maymay restaurant outside of my house, and it's called the new Maymay Kitchen, and I'm assuming, Irene, that yours is of much higher quality than the one outside of my house. Uh, dear Cooking Issues crew, greeting from Irene, writing to you from Boston. I run a food truck called Maymay uh, Street Kitchen with my brother Andy, sister Margaret, and the partner Max. Uh, we, do a bu- we do a bunch of local sourcing, whole pigs and the like, and we're opening our restaurant later this summer and hope you can come visit us one day. Our staff loves the show uh, and the blog, so thanks for being cool and teaching us lots of cool stuff. Also, congrats on the Kickstarter. We're eager- eagerly awaiting our puff pack and are super happy for you guys. So good supporter, right? Strong. Uh, I'll be in Boston, actually, uh, in uh, early September for a little bit. Um, I might have my dog with me, though, so I don't know if you have outdoor seating. My question today is about MSG. We don't use it in our food or at home, but we don't mind eating it, and it drives us nuts when people complain about it, like Nastasha, for instance. Uh, The number one complainer is our mom, who claims she gets headaches and can taste it in the cheap Chinese food we occasionally eat. She is both a doctor and of Chinese descent, so you can imagine that it is a uh, tricky topic around the house. We've considered just sneaking it into her food and then surprise attacking her with the truth, but I still live in her house, so that seems inadvisable. Do you know of any particularly legit or academic scientific work on the MSG myth that we can share with her. She's read a few PopSci articles and the stuff in HuffPo and Salon, and they didn't really do it for her. Any help is much appreciated. All the best, Irene and the May May Street Kitchen. P.S. Sometimes when we're having a bad day, we re-listen to your rant about raps. Thanks for that. That was a good rant, actually. Okay, here's what you want, Irene. 
First of all, look up the article, The Chinese Restaurant Syndrome, an anecdote revisited in uh, 1986, Food and Chemical Toxicology, where it describes the history of Chinese restaurant syndrome. In brief, in 1968, Dr. Robert Homan Kwok recounted a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, his experience of a strange syndrome whenever he ate in a Chinese restaurant. He reported his experience of one of numbness beginning at the back of the neck, radiating to the arms and back, and accompanied by weakness and palpitations. He suggested that the cause might be some component of the cooking wine, the high salt content of the northern Chinese food or the monosodium glutamate that was used. This letter triggered a deluge of similar anecdotes and focused attention on MSG as the causative agent. However, back then it wasn't MSG. It was called Chinese restaurant syndrome. And in fact, uh, I think you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that people who were eating stuff that wasn't uh, used, they weren't used to, or if, for instance, they go to a Chinese restaurant and pound all of the stuff without having any rice that's not salted, they're pounding a boatload of sodium. Just my two cents. But here's another interesting thing from that paper. When the study population was screened to identify uh, those who claimed to have heard of uh, Chinese restaurant syndrome and believed that they knew what it was, it was found that those subjects had a rate of reporting CRS-type symptoms that was 10 times greater than the general population and an equally greater rate of reporting nonspecific syndrome is presumably from this group of dyspeptic individuals that the majority of Chinese restaurant syndrome anecdotes arise. So... uh, the nice way of saying in your in your head. Now I'm not insulting your mom, but I'm it's I'm not insulting your mom here. Don't take it that way. Uh, a lot of papers later that were really uh, there's been a lot of papers. The papers that have found that there is a problem uh, have a couple of, with with monosodium glutamate have a couple of issues. Uh, a lot of them are that they don't successfully mask the taste of MSG in the studies that they do. Uh, the best paper I know uh, from an earlier date that kind of disproves really kind of strong kaboom. Uh, that there's no problem mon- that proves that there's no problem with monosodium glutamate is from uh, Dr. Tarasoff in 1993, Monosodium L glutamate, a double blind study and review, uh, which is like baller. They put the monosodium glutamate into gel caps, blew the gel caps off, did a double blind controlled placebo thing, and showed in fact that there's nothing wrong with MSG. There's someone who wrote a, 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 a criticism of their uh, of that article, and then he came out, he or she, my, I don't actually, maybe it's a she, I don't know. Dr. Tarasoff came out. And uh, with a with a uh, with a rejoinder to that called another case of glutamania, uh, in also in 1993, and I will just read it very quickly because it is intensely awesome because uh, it's one of the and I said it before the last time I went off an MSG. It's like you see the scientists like totally dropping the glove and just being like, "Listen, you d bags, here's what here's what it is," and, and, and give this one to your mom, have her read it. Uh, just look up um, look up another case of glutamania by uh, Dr. Tarasoff, T A R A S O F F. I think it was 93. Three, although it might have been a year later or so. Okay. Another case of glutamania, and this is from the article. MSG is, is an amino acid found in all foods and sometimes termed free glutamate or glutamate. All organs in the human body contain MSG as it is found in the bloodstream. Boom. Uh, but the boom is mine. Uh, by far, the highest levels are found in parts of the brain. The brain is protected from the bloodstream by the blood-brain barrier, which is largely impervious to incoming MSG. The brain synthesizes its own glutamate from glucose. This is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Namely, you need glutamate to think, a fact which is worthwhile pondering. Boom.
also mine. Uh, the brain eliminates its used glutamic acid by conversion to glutamine, which can cross the blood-brain barrier. That is, the brain is a net exporter of MSG. The notions of exogenous and endogenous MSG are only relevant around the blood-brain barrier. Outside, they are biologically equivalent. The turnover of MSG in the body is approximately 5 to 10 grams per hour since it is readily tra- um, transaminated to alpha-ketoglutarate, ke- uh, which is used in the Krebs cycle for conversion to energy in several organs. Zowie. When plasma levels are increased by huge doses of MSG in the absence of food, they return to basal levels in less than two hours. Unrealistically large doses can elicit mild transient sensations such as lightheadedness, stiffness, tightness, weakness of the limbs, and warmth and burning of the skin, face, or scalp in some subjects. It should be emphasized that such effects are caused by very fast consumption in several minutes in the absence of food and do not reflect a realistic eating situation. The World Health Organization lifted its numerical limits on the use of MSG in 1987, and more recently, the American Medical Association did not support labeling requirements for food containing uh, uh, free glutamine. MSG, here's it, boom, boom, boom. MSG is ubiquitous in vegetable and meats as it is in the human body. To comprehend the issues, it is easiest to start by considering some foods which do not contain MSG, pure salt and white sugar. The crystalline MSG that is added to foods is made by a fermentation process which produces the identical optical isomer found in quote-unquote natural foods. Chemically, it is the monohydrate of the sodium salt of R2 amino pentadi- uh, pen- pentaneido- I can't pronounce it. Pen... Tanidioic acid. The concentration in tomatoes can be as high as 0.34%. Foods containing fermented, autolyzed, or hydrolyzed proteins contain much higher concentrations of amino acids. These include Parmesan cheese at equivalent of 1.5% MSG, soy sauce at an equivalent of 1.3% MSG. Uh, so, boom, de boom, boom, de boom, boom, boom. I hope that helps with your mom. You think it's going to help, Eddie? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty hardcore stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, do we have, t- we have time for a couple? A little bit? Wait, it's one. One? Well, what, Jack, can we stay on for a couple minutes? Or Joe? No one's there, so we can do whatever we want. Bang! Alex writes in about pressure cookers. My wife recently gave me a pressure cooker, which I've been delightedly using to make delicious recipes. Actually, she claims uh, uh, to have been unduly influenced by her unborn, unborn child on the grounds that she would never deliberately give me more kitchen stuff. I've been thrilled with the results so far, but the cooker was, as we shall say, a thrifty purchase, and I am somewhat dubious that it performs as well as a more robust model, model like the Kuhn Recon. Specifically, I wonder whether it gets up to the full 15 PSI called for by the recipes. Is there any way for me to tell what kind of pressure it gets up to and how to modify these recipes to compensate uh, for this? Thanks, and keep up the good work, Alex. All right, Alex. I feel you, man. You got the present from uh, from the wife, so you can't ditch it and get the get the higher quality one. It's all right. Listen, uh, unfortunately, there's no way easy. I don't know what brand you have, if uh, you know, but you can do things like um, go on uh, cooking issues on our pressure cooker tests, and we do eggs at different temperatures for different lengths of time, and you can kind of gauge by the browning that you get whether or not you're at a full 15 psi, or you could borrow someone's pressure cooker and cook like two either two eggs in them hard-boiled eggs in them uh for like an hour and check the pressure pressure differences or uh sweetened condensed milk you can see whether or not they they turn brown like dulce de leche at the same rate but unless you want to tap into that sucker i don't know that how you're going to be able to test the pressure one thing i'll say most pressure cookers uh that aren't the coon recon they need to be venting act actively for them to be at at pressure so it's not just that little yellow button popping up that indicates pressure it's actual venting of steam that indicates pressure but uh yeah i know it's tough it's it's tough you got the present you can't say i love it honey but i wish i had the coon recon it doesn't work you know what i mean it doesn't work uh okay james writes quickly about stretchy ice cream hey dave nastasha 
and the booth crew. I like that booth crew. You like that booth crew. We are the booth crew. You know that song. All right. I've tried making Dave's stretchy potato ice cream. When it works, it hits it out of the park. The stretchiness adds to the sensation of creaminess without becoming too sweet. However, anytime I vary the recipe, or even occasionally when I follow the cooking issues blog recipe, it fails to gain stretch. Have you done any more tests with this that haven't made it into the blog? Cheers, James. Well. I, I've tested it and I've, uh, no, I haven't. I've tested it and had it not work when I've used, uh, other than Idaho, uh, you know, other than like russet Burbank style potatoes. I've had it fail with, uh, mealy, like kind of, uh, potatoes from Colombia, these potato criollos. So I think, uh, you know, I've had it fail when, uh, I let it store too long or when the potatoes have been sitting around too long or when the starch retrogrades too much. So I have had it fail, but I haven't done any more research. But, you know, but let, let me know exactly what happened because maybe we can work this in and maybe I can find someone who's, uh, I don't know, who will work on the problem. Also, a good stretchy ice cream is, uh, guar and, lo- and, um, guar and, uh, flavor, flavor free guar and, uh, gel That makes a nice stretchy ice cream, but it doesn't have the potato, which I like. I like the potato. I, I should do more work on it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I wasn't able to d- make it with straight starch. I'll ask Piper. I'm sure Piper will think about this crap a lot, right? It does. That's the kind of thing Piper's going to sit around instead of he doing the work that we're supposed right to do. He'll do that kind of stuff, right? Okay. Lastly, we're going to make it all the way through. Johnny writes in about eggs and Easy Whipper. Uh, Dave, Nastasha, Joe, and Jack, long-time listener, first-time question asker. I love the show, blog, and bar. Thanks. And look forward to each new episode. You guys do a tremendous job. Keep up the amazing work. I am an avid home cook, and no matter how many eggs I eat, and I eat a lot, me too. Eggs are good. Uh, I can't seem to keep bits of shell uh, consistently out of my eggs when I'm cracking them. Any tips on avoiding this? I've gotten better at fishing them out with a shell. It's like a magnet. But would like to get good at cracking them without so much carnage. Uh, also, I know it's been covered over and over, but can you recommend a particular ISI ripper, whipper for rapid infusion for a home cook? All right. On eggs. You know what? I really don't know. I haven't studied this very much. I will say that uh, Jacques Pepin, the famous uh, French chef uh, that you know we know hung out with, uh, we we you know I call him Jackie Peeps. I don't know why sometimes <laughs> Jackie Peeps. So uh, he always used to say that you want to crack your shells on a flat surface and not on the uh, not on the edge of your bowl uh, if you want to avoid uh, shells. I also notice that obviously my shell problem is worse when I'm not paying it. when I'm when I'm literally like bowl cracking one handed and like breaking them open. That's when I I do it. I think a lot has to do frankly with the eggs themselves some eggs seem to uh seem to shell out and throw bits of shell a lot more uh than other ones do but uh i don't know i mean what do you think i try the old table crack instead of the uh, bowl crack well, the table crack you push it through like a china cap as well after you crack i mean if you're doing like a scramble but yeah if you're doing a sunny side up you're kind of screwed yeah you're kind of shafted yeah yeah uh yeah it's problematic i mean honestly like the lower quality crappy eggs have that problem and the really high quality thick egg problems have that for different reasons right. one because the shell just disintegrates in your hand and like falls into the other and the other one because the shell is so damn strong that sometimes a bit of the membrane it can come off and go in I wish I had a good answer on that, but I do have a good one on the ISI for you. So the ISI people themselves, or EC, actually, who we've been dealing with, who make the whipped cream containers, uh, they they kind of think that you want to use a half-liter whipper. And for home use, a half-liter is probably good enough. For a bar, I use a liter. The problem is, if you're going to make a lot of whipped cream, kind of a liter is nice to have. Uh, if you're doing infusion, rapid infusion recipes, um, you might have to use two chargers instead of one. Uh, when you're doing it in a liter versus a half liter, if you're not changing the recipe to get the pressure up there, but 
I really don't think that's that big of a deal. The trick you might have to change a recipe written for a half liter to work in a one liter, but you can definitely work it. And if you're at home, the cost of throwing in an extra charger every once in a while isn't big compared to the cost of being not as versatile if you need that one liter to do something, right? Uh, so, I mean, if you're in a restaurant and you're doing it every day and you're banging out for service, those chargers add up quick. But Lee, but if you are uh, doing it at home, it's not such a big deal. So if I only could have one, I would probably have a one liter guy. Now listen. I uh, didn't mention this. Came up with a new technique the other day for the ISI Whipper. So, in a nutshell, rapid infusion uh, in, rapid infusion works this way. Uh, you put a product in a liquid in an ISI at room temperature. You force the uh, nitrous oxide in. The nitrous oxide under pressure forces the liquid into the product. You shake it around. The pressure uh, also increases the rate at which things come out of the food and into the porous object into your liquids. You then vent it violently after a couple of minutes and stuff boils out and brings the flavor with it. That's how rapid infusion works, rapid nitrous infusion in an EC. Okay. Problem is you can't use an EC or couldn't use an EC to get the flavors into uh, a product. So for instance, like the cucumber martinis that I made like, you know, a billion years ago, like, you know, when I was first starting out in this thing where I used a vacuum machine to suck the air out of the cucumber and then uh, having it underneath gin and and, uh, and um, gin and, and vermouth and a little bit of simple. And then when you let the air back in, boom, the, the uh, air slams the gin into the cucumber, making a, an awesome looking transparent uh, kind of cucumber martini. That doesn't work in an ISI because the the stuff boiling back out of the cucumber makes it look not right and it doesn't have as much of an infusion. So you can't do nice uh, flash pickling in the ISI and have those beautiful results. I figured out a way to do it. Here's what you do. Here's the new technique. I'm call- we're call- I don't know what I'm going to call it, like EC flash pickling or something like that. So what you do is you put the cucumber and the gin, vermouth, a little bit of simple salt in a sandwich-sized Ziploc bag, Right? Uh, I cut them into planks, right? Then you roll. I roll three of those sandwich Ziploc bags with the uh, with the alcohol in them, and I don't need much. So for 200 grams of uh, planks, or for 150 or 180 grams of cucumber planks, I use about uh, 200 and change mils of this mixture, right? In the Ziploc bags, you do it just like low temperature Ziplocs. You put your finger in it, you dip it under the water to get the air out, so it's only cucumbers and gin mixture in the Ziploc bag. Roll it up, stick it into your ISI. Fill it up to the fill line with water, close it, put a charger on it, agitate it uh, you know, a little bit, just a little bit. You don't need to do it a lot. And then let it sit for two minutes like that. Now slow – now what's happening is is that you've used the pressure from the, from the nitrous or carbon dioxide, it doesn't matter in this case, to force the liquid that's in the bag into the pores of the cucumber. Right, there's still a little bit little gas bubbles because they're crushed in there. So you're going to lose some of the infusion uh, when you vent, but not as much as you would if you were actually injecting nitrous into the cucumbers themselves. You then want to slowly vent the thing up to up to atmosphere after about two minutes. Now, if you were going to don't remove it, although if you did, you'd look at it, you'd see there's still air bubbles coming out of the cucumber just because the cucumber doesn't know what the hell's happened. So for the next five minutes or so, you're going to see little tiny air bubbles coming up out of the cucumber into the gin liquid. So you're going to let it sit in the, in, the, uh, in the whipper for five minutes. Then add one more charger, let it sit for another two minutes, vent very slowly, and when you take the stuff out, boom, flash pickled in an AC, in an AC whipper, cooking issues, yeah. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.